Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and Vice President of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording June 3rd, 2021, we're exploring the American outlook on continental defense and NORAD modernization with Brigadier General Peter Fessler, NORAD's Deputy Director of Operations, Iris Ferguson, Arctic Advisor to the United States Air Force, and Lindsay Rodman, Executive Director of the Leadership Council of Women in International Security and a Canadian Global Affairs Institute Fellow. This episode is part of a series on American security challenges funded by the United States Department of State and part of a Canadian Department of National Defense Minds program on continental defense. The opinions, findings, and conclusions stated herein are those of the guest speaker and the moderator only, and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State or the organization for which the speaker works. This podcast is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding, a strategic partner of the federal government's national shipbuilding strategy, providing skilled, well-paying jobs that support Canada's economic recovery. Focused on diversity and inclusion in employment and supply chain, Ships for Canada is growing opportunities for Indigenous people, women, African Canadians and veterans. Because when we build in Canada, we invest in Canadians. General Iris, uh, Lindsay, welcome uh, all. Thanks for joining us today. So we're going to launch right into it. I'm going to try and cover a, a wide range of topics that I think are, are pressing in terms of continental defense, NORAD, uh, and the modernization of plans for defending the American homeland, as well as the continental North America. Lindsay, I'm going to ask you to, to start off uh, framing from a high level um, how you see the American military adapting and modernizing its plans for homeland defense. Lindsay. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. I'm you know, a huge fan of CGI, very honored to still be a fellow, even though I no longer live in Canada. So I think we're in a little bit of a wait and see uh, as we see the Biden administration um, be a little bit more clear about what its intentions are. And you know, when you look at the, the big overarching strategies that might help one discern where the United States is leaning when it comes to homeland defense and continental defense, You've got the national defense strategy and then you've got the national security strategy. Uh, right away, when President Biden took office, he launched his own national security strategic guidance. Um, so not a national security strategy, but a document right away to signal the sea change that he wanted to see in American national security policy and foreign policy. And the word homeland does not appear once in that document. Um, domestic is only used in the context of domestic policy. So, uh, you know, furthering his um, foreign policy with a middle class type agenda. Um, and so you see that, uh, you know, I think it would be fair to derive from that, that Homeland Defense is not priority number one in terms of the Biden agenda coming in the gate. Um, if you look at the national defense strategy from 2018, which is very much still in play because there's been no new document, um, you see uh, uh, a prioritization of Homeland Defense. Um, so at least from Department of Defense perspective, Homeland Defense is still, uh, quite important, um, although I'm not sure that, you know, sort of the, the attention at the very highest levels is trapped by homeland defense and continental defense type issues. I think uh, there's a lot more um, energy that's put towards this question of great power competition and what a major theater conflict might look like and new joint warfighting concepts that apply in those um, contexts. There is an acknowledgement, though, in the 2018 National Defense Strategy that the homeland is, quote, no longer a sanctuary. So there is this sense that there is a real threat to the U.S. homeland, and the threat can manifest in really existential ways for the United States and Canada. Um, that's not necessarily spelled out explicitly, but I think that's a fair reading of, of what's um, 
what's referred to there. When I think, so, you know, not from any of these documents, but just thinking through where do the existential threats to the homeland come for the United States and, um, and likewise thinking through where might they actually be existential threats to the continent and not just the United States within its own borders. Um, I see sort of four main categories. Uh, one is the long range strategic threat. Um, so that is, you know, including from the enemy nuclear triad, but just long range bombers, missile capability, et cetera. Um, that's the one that I think folks think of the most in the context of hard security, um, right? Things that explode coming through the air and, uh, and landing in the continent or, or the homeland. I think there is a real existential threat that comes from increasing cyber activity. Um, not necessarily cyber war, right? It could be criminal. It could be um, from a host of uh, sources, but it, it merits strong uh, defense. And uh, there is likewise a threat from space. And both of those have to do with critical infrastructure, communications, and other things that we as a society rely upon that um, if they were taken out would really prove existential. Uh, and then finally, there's the domestic extremism threat. Um, so the threat of terrorism, is the only context in which homeland uh, considerations were even referenced in the Biden strategy. And it's one that really is top of mind in the United States right now. Um, and so that's one that I think merits some consideration. Uh, and again, that, that wouldn't necessarily emanate from the Department of Defense, although there have been some DOD internal extremism stand downs and stuff like that. Um, but that is where, you know, when one thinks about where, where does the real threat lie for the United States and the homeland, those are some of the buckets. So just returning as a, as a last point, um, the one that the, the first bucket that I named, that sort of long range um, strategic threat, um, that very much comes out of the great power framing and the, the sense that um, the threat potentially from other great powers, namely Russia and China, has ramped up recently. Um, I, I don't know the extent to, whether, to which that's true or whether we're just more focused on it these days, but, um, but it is a possibility. Um, and that I only flag because I know that it is an uh, important consideration for Canadians. I know there is a robust debate in Canada about defense um, when it comes to those threats. And so I, I flag it because I do think that it's an important topic and it may, it may get some more salience in the coming years. And so for Canadians, that might be a topic of interest. Great. Uh, thanks, Lindsay. Uh, so uh, General Fessler, uh, we wanted to kind of start with a, a wider picture uh, where you are out in Colorado Springs. Obviously, uh, NORAD's got uh, direct responsibilities uh, for a portion of this. And I guess from your vantage point where you are, can you situate for us how NORAD and NORTHCOM is looking at um, the, the efforts that are underway to modernize NORAD within a continental framework and then how that ties into homeland defense uh, specifically? Absolutely. Before I, first off, let me say thanks for letting me attend this. It's, uh, it's great to actually um, see some folks that I've seen before on the screen there pop in and, and this is a topic that's important and I'm really glad to see more people paying attention to it. Let me throw a couple things out to kind of um, uh, add some context to some of the things that Lindsay brought up. You know, I, uh, it wasn't lost on us that absence of reference of Homeland or Continental Defense in that guidance memo that came out of the president. But there are a couple of things that are interesting in there that we've thought are embedded in that that, that indicate that the focus is still there. The first um, one are very early on in the administration, the new Secretary of Defense talked to the MND and a topic of conversation was NORAD modernization. And the new president talked to the prime minister and a topic of conversation in that discussion was NORAD modernization. So 
while it's not in that guidance memorandum, it's certainly in the thinking that's going on right now in the administration. The other thing that I think <clears throat> is in that kind of indicates there's still interest in that is uh, the focus on peer competitors in and of itself implies a need to be able to defend uh, North America. And specifically, the reason I say that is those competitors, unlike the ones we've been focused on over the last two decades in the Middle East, the violent extremist type organizations, have the ability to range us here in North America. In a conflict unlike one that would occur in Afghanistan or Iraq, for example, uh, or Libya or anywhere else, <clears throat> is much more likely to expand beyond the regional confines of the European theater or the Pacific theater to include uh, uh, potential for strikes against us here in North America. And, that, and I, uh, as evidence for that, I would point to cyber, which clearly is uh, a global threat. Uh, it's not regionally confined. And it gives you some indication of where our competitors are thinking about uh, conflict in the future as being global as opposed to regionally confined. But let me talk specifically about NORAD modernization. I'd like to start with what it isn't, because there's a lot of confusion on when people use the term NORAD modernization, what specifically they're talking about. Well, we don't view NORAD modernization uh, as from the headquarters here is a change to the NORAD agreement or an expansion of the mission sets that are spelled in the, out in that. We're still focused on aerospace warning, aerospace control and maritime uh, warning. It's uh, uh, although we do recognize that there's probably going to be need a need to change things in the terms of reference to keep up with the threat as it exists today, but not really a wholesale expansion of the mission set. It's also not just the replacement of the North warning system. People frequently to go NORAD modernization equates to replace the line of radars that extend across Northern Canada, just south of the archipelago and across into Alaska. NORAD modernization is much more than that. So let me talk about uh, uh, that a little bit. Uh, it's not just buying new equipment either, and I think I need to make that clear. What it is, it's changes to our operational concepts, changes to our plans, changes to how we globally integrate NORAD's mission with our uh, uh, with CJOC, with NORTHCOM, with NATO and UCOM and uh, forces in the Pacific. It's uh, a change on how we use the equipment that we have today, and it is the acquisition of new equipment. The goal for all this and where we're really focused right now is in light of a global threat, a threat that can hold us at risk below the nuclear threshold in North America today, our goal is to deter an attack before it ever starts. We'd rather not get to the point where we're fighting. We want to try to present a credible deterrence, not simply through retaliation using nuclear weapons, but through an ability to deny our, our competitors objectives and deny an adversary who's considering attacks the easy button of being able to achieve effects on us here in Canada and the United States. If we can do that, if we can deter them in peacetime, if we can have the capability to create that deterrence, it also gives us options to de-escalate in crisis. Rather than simply going from steady state to conflict and there's no in-between, we look for options to off-ramp. And then finally, we have to have a capability should all that fail and we end up in conflict to be able to defend ourselves. All of that is focused on achieving uh, decision superiority, which is time and options for our national leaders to consider shy of simply going into a all out conflict. We need to have an ability to, to stop a conflict before it occurs. All of that starts in our, our uh, commander's guidance here with achieving increased domain awareness. And what's interesting with that is while that's our priority, it's also a priority within SSE. 
need to have a better understanding of what's happening in the environment around the approaches to North America, and in particular, the Arctic approaches to North America, because we're particularly vulnerable from those approaches. That's kind of what our focus is. And that's why I think sometimes our, the discussion immediately devolves to simply replacing the North warning system. Now, obviously, we're going to have to make additional changes. We're going to have to increase our uh, information dominance capability, our ability to process information, relay command and control instructions to achieve that decision superiority. We're going to have to have an ability to mitigate risks to key components of critical infrastructure. We're going to have to do that in a globally integrated fashion in order to achieve that decision superiority. But I wanted to spend just a minute talking about the fact that it is significantly more than simply replacing the North warning system, but it is not looking at a wholesale expansion of what NORAD's mission set is and what it has been since um, the addition of maritime warning in the post 9-11 environment. So how that fits into the broader um, homeland defense on the U.S. side? Well, certainly because NORAD is focused on air, missile, and maritime warning, there are other components that we're concerned about. Cyber and maritime threats are both of interest, and NORTHCOM has particular focus on those areas. NORTHCOM, like CJOC, is covering those areas of concern. So whatever modernization occurs within NORAD, it has to be in the context of modernization efforts underway at CJOC and in NORTHCOM and in on the U.S. side, U.S. Cyber Command, in order to ensure that we have defense in all domains, that we're able to deter attack in all domains, and that we have the ability to understand what's happening in the environment around us, whether it's at sea, in the cyber domain, in the air, or a ballistic missile traveling through space. So that's where our focus is right now. We can get into significantly more detail as we go through the process here, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave it there unless there are any other specific questions that you have. Okay, that's excellent. And uh, I, there's lots to, to follow up on there um, as we go forward. Um, Iris, I'm going to turn to you now. So uh, certainly from a, a Canadian perspective, and I assume from an American one, if you think about continental defense, about NORAD, it's, it's mostly an air mission, aerospace mission, but Air Force led. Um, so can you give us a sense of how uh, the defense of the homeland of the continent of North America fits into the United States Air Force's thinking uh, and talk a bit about the, the Arctic strategy and how that overlays onto those issues? You know, for from the inception of uh, the Air Force, uh, you know, Homeland Defense has been a really critical component. Actually, the code that created the U.S. Air Force mentions de providing defense for the United States. So doing that mission set is actually fundamental and crucial to what the Air Force does. And, and ensuring that we do it right is really important. Uh, I, I would argue that we, we, it's, we've somewhat forgotten that a little bit. And we, need to, we need to get back to, to some of the, the, the basics of our, our initial inception. And from a, a driver perspective of the Arctic strategy, uh, you know, it originally started back in 2017. We took a trip with uh, a lot of the senior officers of the Air Force um, at the time in the Pentagon. We, we went up to Alaska. We uh, were planning on going to Inuvik to visit the forward operating locations, had some challenges with travel, but I made it to alert and also over to Greenland. Uh, but but uh, the main premise was to go check out this Homeland Defense mission set to understand the changes, walk the ground, see the changes that are happening and, and talk to the, the folks that are doing the mission sets. So they saw the geophysical changes that are happening clearly with climate change and the increased human activity and some of the impacts to our infrastructure, but also, as Lindsay mentioned, some of these uh, more geopolitical changes that are happening as well uh, with increased activity from uh, Russia and, and China in the region. And th those were some of the, the thoughts of, hey, this is a, a region that we cannot, we can no longer take for granted. This is no longer a strategic buffer that uh, some of the, the long held ideas of this being an area where we, we might not need to pay attention, we need to start paying attention to in, in a more fundamental way. Uh, and then in 2018, the National Defense Strategy came out. And as Lindsay mentioned, this, uh, Homeland Defense was the number one priority for this. 
And the reality is that the Air Force owns and operates the majority of the architecture for the, a lot of the Homeland Defense mission set. And the Arctic is a, is a key avenue of approach. So there was this recognition that the Arctic is an avenue of approach, the Air Force owns and operates a lot of the mission set for that Homeland Defense piece. And that air and space power, as you mentioned, Dave, is really critical for the Arctic in particular. It's really hard to operate on the surface there. And, and, uh, and really one of the more, uh, important statistics to come out from a leadership perspective of the strategy work is that the Air Force spends the vast bulk of resourcing for the region. We spend close to 80% of what the Department of Defense does uh, for, uh, for the Arctic region. And there's also uh, no owner uh, for, the, for, the, for the Air Force or for the DOD at large. And so absent a strategic document um, kind of driving consensus and driving a path forward, it, it, was, it was really, I think, critical for us to start to, to move on a path towards, uh, towards the future and, and planning. So uh, what were the, the key findings of the document? And we have four main lines of effort uh, for folks that, that, that want to check it, check it out. But the, the main thing is that domain awareness is, is the most important. It's the first line of effort. Um, it's not only critical for the Homeland Defense mission set and being able to detect threats, but it's also really imperative for our survival and our ability to operate and understand the environment at large. Another key finding was uh, that preparation is key, that you can't just show up uh, you have to, you can't, you can't just deploy to the Arctic and expect to thrive and survive and win, uh, that you really have to train and operate your people and your equipment there. Uh, and so that, that takes, that'll take a lot of muscle movement for us to get more folks up there to get uh, trained and qualified to operate in the Arctic. Um, and then the, the third is that the Arctic is an area of strategic opportunity. And, and, and I think that's exceptionally true for, for, I would say argue for the Department of Defense at large, but certainly for the Air Force uh, from a power projection perspective, you know, we have a, a lot of base infrastructure uh, within Alaska in particular because of our ability to project power across the globe. Uh, we have uh, significant assets within Eielson Air Force Base and Joint Base Elmendorf. And, you know, those assets aren't aren't are for the Homeland Defense mission set, but they're actually technically owned by the Indo-PACOM mission set because they're meant to flow to the Pacific because it's closer to flow from there to the Pacific than the rest of the continental United States. It also is a, provides us the ability to project power into the European theater. So uh, that's a, a really important piece of the, the geopolitical, uh, the, sorry, that uh, the geographical um, importance of the Arctic region. And the second you know, area of strategic opportunity is the allies and partners angle. Cannot understate this enough for the Arctic region uh, in particular. I, I hesitate or would querying someone to find a more uh, unique location in the sense that it is incredibly geopolitically aligned with our allies and partners. We also have incredibly highly capable military militaries within those allies and partners. And so there's a lot of potential synergies to be found within um, driving uh, consensus and, uh, and operating capabilities within, within the region. And so the strategy right now, we're in the throes of implementation. Uh, we're actually coming up on our, our one year anniversary shortly in a, in a couple of months. And, and you'll see, uh, hopefully from the Air Force, a couple of, of events highlighting some of the progress to date. Okay, that's great. Um, Lindsay, I'm gonna ask you to, to build off of that Air Force centric view of, of what's happening in the Arctic, because you've looked more broadly across uh, the, the different branches and the totality of the American defense establishment. So how is the Arctic fitting into wider American um, strategic and defense thinking? Um, so the first word that comes to mind is weirdly, uh, but I will contextualize that. Um, uh, you know, there, there has very recently been a huge increase in diplomatic attention to the Arctic. Uh, during the Trump administration, the Arctic um, really got a lot more attention than it ever did in the Obama administration. It, paying attention to the Arctic, especially in the context of increasing 
activity from Russia and China was very much in line with the Trump administration's approach to global issues in general. Um, and I do think that that will continue in the Biden administration, but with a little bit of a different flavor. So some of that additional diplomatic attention included opening the consulate in Nook, um, uh, the appointment of a new Arctic envoy, um, and just really a, uh, increased um, uh, proliferation of some of these strategies, uh, including the one that Iris talked about, um, the Air Force strategy. In the context of the Department of Defense, you know, the, the, the real noteworthy thing was the proliferation of these strategies. There are no other regional service level strategies, right? Like there's no Marine Corps strategy for Western Europe or whatever, right? Um, the, the uniqueness and the exceptionalism of the Arctic region have driven the services and the Department of Defense in general to think about the region in ways that are completely unique and not translatable to other regions. It's also noteworthy, as Iris mentioned, um, that there's no COCOM that has a singular uh, um, responsibility for the Arctic, that it's sort of, it's a seam in terms of there's a lot of overlapping uh, interests and, you know, there, there's no gapped part of the region necessarily, but um, but because there's overlapping interest there and no one COCOM is in charge that, you know, it creates um, uh, the potential for some friction down the line, uh, although I don't know that we've necessarily seen it um, to date. Um, you know, the, the service level strategies themselves are a little bit weird. <laughs> like I said, not just because they're unique, but because um, the mission of a service is to organize, train, and equip. Uh, it's not to engage in geopolitics necessarily. So um, opining about the future of a geopolitical region is um, not necessarily a normal thing for a service to do. Um, so really what the strategies should be doing in theory doctrinally um, is deriving from broader US strategy, operational imperatives and determining the lines of effort that will be important going forward. Um, I am not just saying this because who's in the room, uh, but I do think the Air Force strategy is by far the one that makes the most sense and the one that's the best written. Um, and I would say that to Marines or Army or whoever was in the room as well. Um, I think that is in large part because, as Iris mentioned, close to 80% of United States funding that is spent in the region belongs to the US Air Force. So when the US Air Force writes a strategy about what it can be doing, should be doing um, in the Arctic, it makes sense, right? <laughs> like there's, there's a real, um, uh, constituency there, a stakeholder interest there in terms of the Arctic. Um, I think, frankly, it was a little bit harder for the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Army to write a strategy that, or I'm sorry, not the, the Department of the Navy, Department of the Army, um, to write a strategy that had um, a real path forward and commitments about what the future might look like in the absence of funding and in the absence of a clear operating picture in the Arctic. Uh, so, you know, despite the fact that there is a lot of rhetoric about great power competition and the services are thinking through concepts in light of potential challenges that great comp power competition might uh, force the United States to face in the near and medium term. Um, if those threats manifest in the Arctic, it's not obvious that the US is putting a lot of funding or a lot of uh, new capability towards those efforts. During the Trump administration, there was an interest in um, and, and a commitment to, for example, funding icebreakers, which was a big deal. Um, but it's not clear how much the Biden administration will take that ball and continue to run it down the field or whether there will be some funding diversions for some purposes. 
I do think the Biden administration, however, is going to be paying a lot of attention to climate security and potentially some of the human security aspects of what's happening in the Arctic. And if those because there's such a strong climate focus in terms of the imperatives of the Biden administration right off the bat, it's really hard to think that they, they're going to ignore the Arctic in light of that because the Arctic is really sort of ground zero when where some of those issues are really coming into the focus. And moving forward, it'll be interesting to see whether um, they, the imperative to also take some of the hard security issues seriously uh, becomes sort of uh, more front of mind for them as they start looking more deeply into the Arctic. Iris, to, to come back to you, uh, since you had touched earlier uh, about basing, about infrastructure and, and the USAF's uh, footprint in Alaska specifically, uh, and then, then drawing just off what Lindsay was talking about in terms of climate change. In Canada, there, there's a look both, uh, I think, just as Lindsay was touching on, both from kind of the geostrategic um, sense of uh, whether or not we need to, to have more more um, accessibility into the Arctic to do power projection. Uh, but then there's also, I think, a, a lot of concerns about changing climate, what that does to permafrost and, and kind of the undermining of the, what we already have there today. Um, what's the Air Force thinking about what it needs to do uh, with the real estate that it does have uh, up in the Arctic and, and what and potential modifications or adaptations there? Yeah, no, th th thanks for that. No, th I think that the you know, the geophysical changes are, are significant. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned before, um, you know, just the, the the amount of infrastructure that we have is vast. So that eighty percent, a lot of that eighty percent of that resource resourcing goes to operation and maintenance of the existing infrastructure that's there, and that, that ranges from you know the, these large bases at Jay Bear and Isleson. We also have uh, Jay Park, joint system with Alaska Range Complex, is one of the the U.S.'s largest air training space airspace. Uh, airspaces. And then we have a long range missiles detection capacities at Clear Alaska and at Thule, um, in addition to the North Warning System, of course, that we cooperate with, with Canada. And so you know, the strategy doesn't necessarily call for an amplification of these spaces or trying to plus up or to add to necessarily, unless we see there's merit, you know, maybe if we decide that that is a rationale, but that's not necessarily what the strategy is calling for. It's actually just calling for us to think strategically about our base infrastructure. Um, first off, are we able to defend it? Uh, it was, as Lindsay mentioned, you know, the homeland is no longer a sanctuary. And we have a lot of important assets actually in Alaska, a, a lot of really critical um, uh, fifth generation capacity with F-35s coming into IELTS and there'll be more fifth generation aircraft there than anywhere else in the entire world. So are we able to defend those bases? Uh, is the Army doing that for us or are we needing to do that on our own? <laughs> this is getting a little, a little into the inter-service revelries of missions. Um, secondly, you know, the, is the infrastructure secure? You mentioned the, the climate change aspect of this, you know, for, for an uh, Air Force mission set, especially when you're talking about missile defense and space situational awareness, like our assets um, at, at Thule and at Clear, you know, permafrost is no small ordeal. Uh, it is not just a bump in the road or a crack in the wall. That is mission critical. If you have a slight tilt in the radar, that, that's, that's game over. So we're, we take permafrost incredibly seriously, and we actually have for, for decades, and we're getting better at detecting it and being able to mitigate it. Uh, even for years, actually, we painted the runway at Thule white because we didn't know how to detect permafrost. And so we thought if we could just deflect the sun off, it would prevent the caving in of the runway. Turns out that's really expensive. And uh, we ended up being able to have better methods now to, to detect when, where permafrost is happening. We can actually just dig it out in the location where it is. But um, it's a significant issue, uh, especially for, for, for aircraft and for these really um, high sensitivity uh, types of technology. 
and also for coastal erosion on our, on our radar sites in the North Slope, certainly that's also a huge factor. So we're working to, to try to uh, predict the, the rate of coastal erosion in order to determine what we do with some of those radar sites. Um, and beyond the fixed base infrastructure, you know, the strategy also looks at uh, you know, what are we trying to do expeditionarily? Can we operate from an expeditionary capacity uh, in the Arctic? There's um, a, a buzz phrase going around the Pentagon, Arctic combat capability, uh, sorry, not Arctic, sorry, agile combat uh, employment. And, um, and you know, can we do that in the Arctic? You know, it's largely looked at it from a Pacific perspective um, and you know, somewhat in the Middle East, but uh, you know, it's a very, it takes on a very different flavor for the Arctic. You need a lot of different equipment, uh, how you generate um, energy in general, how you, what your hangars look like, how can you survive cold weather, like very, very strong winds. So we're working actually very closely with the Canadians um, on some of these more um, kind of tactical level expeditionary type ideas to get beyond just the fixed space uh, infrastructure that we have today. Okay, great. Uh, um, thanks for that. And, and um, so I think that helps sort of situate uh, part of what I want to ask uh, General Fessler about next in terms of uh, the speed at which we're, we're working on these different activities. So General, you, you started out earlier laying out a, a number of the different lines of effort that are, that are underway as part of NORAD modernization. Uh, and both the current commander and a previous one um, has uh, mentioned more than once that uh, we need to move forward on these different uh, initiatives at the speed of relevance. And that's a term that you hear in Canada as well, that we need to move forward on modernization of the defense of the continent and NORAD specifically at the speed of relevance. Uh, but I am a little bit struck that it, uh, there may be different national perspectives on which speeds may be relevant um, and which speeds may be relevant for the different aspects that you're talking about. So can you help situate for Canadians, which speeds of the, what speeds are relevant on these different lines of effort? Absolutely. Before I jump into that, the Arctic, I wanna to touch on that just briefly. Uh, Lindsay brought up the fact that the service strategies are a little weird. They don't fit into a normal process for doing things. There aren't other strategies for other uh, regions in the world. I agree with that. We have a little bit, we're, while we agree it's a weird approach, we're, we're optimistic and we're encouraged by the focus of the services who are tasked with organized training and equip on an area that NORAD and NORTHCOM have for a long time said is a critical uh, region that we need to have focus on. So we see that as a positive um, to, to Iris's point, I think the Air Force uh, and the uh, NORAD take on uh, Arctic operations are very closely aligned right now. And uh, our approach is different from that of some of our competitors. We're not looking to increase permanent forward basing in the Arctic. Rather, we're looking at organizing and training and equipping our forces to be able to deploy to and operate in the Arctic. And that may require some investment in things like the ability to sustain operations at some of our forward operating locations. Think Anuvik, Akalawit, Goose Bay, Thule, the bases in Alaska, but it's not increased footprint on a day-to-day -day basis. It's an ability to surge and operate there. Let's talk about though the, the speed of relevance. So the past two commanders have used that term to describe several different levels of, of uh, speed of relevance. The first one is kind of down at the the tactical to operational level. The speed of relevance, for example, to uh, needed when we're looking at a deterioration of a global situation that has us seeing the potential for a move to crisis or conflict. When you're looking at speed of relevance to make a decision on whether to increase NORAD force posture, for example, that might be days, weeks, or even months. So that speed of relevance could be a very drawn out thing. If it's a ballistic missile launch, and we're making an assessment of whether or not this is an attack on us here in North America, that's measured in minutes and seconds. So at the tactical and operational level, 
speed of relevance varies significantly based on the situation and what the decisions are that are being made. But I don't think that was the point of your question. I think the point of your question was the speed of relevance rel uh, related to investment and matching where our uh, competitors are going. So let me focus my um, answer on that. Our competitors have invested uh, significantly in a capability to hold us at risk in North America below a nuclear threshold through a variety of means. Those are cyber that we've talked about uh, earlier, all the way to conventional kinetic strikes and sabotage against key critical infrastructure in the US and Canada. Uh, the rate at which they've invested in that capability has exceeded the rate in which we've invested in our ability to defend ourselves. And as you're aware, having looked at this for a while, our real last influx of investment in defense against a peer competitor happened in the mid-1980s when we fielded the North Warring System and some of the command and control systems that we're utilizing today. We saw a little bit of a bump in investment rate after 9 and 11, but that was focused on a BEO threat and prim primarily trying to stop people using a repurposed airliner to knock down a building or using the maritime approaches to bring um, uh, violent extremists into the country. That was really the last time we've invested in that. So the pressure right now is to, um, and speed of relevance as it refers to investment, is something that uh, we view as needing to move out immediately. This is something that needs to go beyond the study of the problem. Our, our uh, perception here at NORAD headquarters is that we have sufficiently studied the problem, that we understand it well, and we understand the requirements. The speed of relevance now is starting to see the changes that um, uh, manifest themselves in the actual investment or changes in the operational concepts that are necessary to move from recognizing that there's a growing threat to actually being able to do something about it with the goal of deterring uh, our competitors in steady state to avoid conflict in the, uh, in the end. So that's, that's where we are right now. Uh, we are focused on tangible gains as opposed to, uh, you know, simply understanding or studying the problem. We're already moving out on some of these things now. Um, I, we can go into more detail later, but there's a couple key investment areas where we're already seeing progress. One of them is Pathfinder. Pathfinder is a system that, uh, that we're moving into a, a command and control type uh, uh, investment. It's binationally invested, so we have money from both the U.S. and Canada on it. We've moved very quickly to be able to ingest data and through creative processing of that data, be able to enhance the capabilities of existing systems and being able to make sense of the data so that we can understand and see patterns that human analysts can't necessarily see emerging, allowing us to get further left of of an actual attack and, and perhaps avert that in the first place. That Pathfinder is uh, really gets at the pace that we need to operate, the second or that we need to invest. The second area where we're seeing some movement is increasing domain awareness. Uh, on the US side, sovereign investment, we've already started to conduct environmental impact studies and site surveys for the fielding of some domain awareness sensors at the 10 and two o'clock approaches to the continent. Now that still leaves the straight north approach straight through the Arctic is uncovered right now in an area where we're focused, but we are seeing movement in increasing domain awareness and approaches to North America. I think I'm getting at your question on that, but is that is that where you wanted to go on this one? Absolutely. Basically, okay. uh, what what's fast mean for you? We've got to move. It's time. <laughs> okay, that I, I think that is pretty clear. Um, so it, it, as part of what um, General Fessler just, just talked about, Iris, um, there's the whole uh, wider, particular, 
in significant focus on situational awareness, domain awareness. Uh, from an Air Force point of view, uh, recognizing that the, the service has fairly significant uh, efforts that are, that are moving in, in that um, direction, I guess, how do those apply in a continental uh, context specifically? Or is, is it the case that what the United States Air Force would do in a North American defense NORAD comp uh, sense just be part of a global approach to improve situational and domain awareness? Or, or how does that differ if it does? Yeah, yeah, no, it's, you know, situational awareness, domain awareness is, you know, I think just to underscore again, I think this is one of the primary roles of the, the, the Air Force um, in general. And so we're trying to look at this problem set globally. Um, I think it's amplified in the Arctic region where we maybe don't have as many sensors or we haven't really looked at the region in as, as, um, as a co in as a cohesive way as we have in other parts of the world. Um, but, you know, for the Air Force strategy, it's the number one line of effort. It's where we're putting the most amount of our attention, uh, whether it be in, you know, working on our missile defense uh, issues or working at communications architecture that simply are allowing us to connect sensors together um, and in, you know, sensors on the environment, et cetera. You know, I think that the conversation is evolving a little bit for the Air Force as a whole about what situational awareness means. And I think it's evolving from maybe one of a, like a platform centric, do we have the right mechanics to do we have the right data? Is data being aggregated in the right way, in a way that's meaningful? General Fessler talked about this with Pathfinder as, as an example of, of where uh, we're seeing some success. But, you know, it's a, it's a challenging technological question. It's, it's actually, it's a, it's a lot, really easy to say, just connects the pipes and tubes, but data is a fun fundamental 21st century challenge for across the board for companies and especially for the Department of Defense. You know, in some ways you could think of it, you know, should we move beyond, a, you know, an air centric platform department with a software problem or are we a software department with an airplane problem? You know, I think we're, it's, data is becoming such an important part of how we operate that we've got to make it more front and center. Um, and the second way I think we're evolving the situational awareness is moving moving beyond kinetic. You know, I read you know General Van Herk uh, has a, a couple of pieces out where he talks about uh, the the weighted preference of our of our military to to look for kinetic solutions to threats, um, and that we really need to be looking more left of launch. How are we able to deny and deter the launch in the first place? And I think part of that um, is is not only uh, is is for our solutions that become more non kinetic, but we also need to be looking at non kinetic. Um, threats as well. And so I think we're trying to, as a department, look at how we approach um, the threat environment, needing to develop better situational awareness about the environment, about politics, diplomacy, et cetera, basically the other parts of the dot mil PF besides the military. Okay, thanks. That, that's great. Uh, so, and I think related to that, um, you, you know, whether or not you're an information organization, whether it has kinetic military applications or, or the other way around, um, I, I guess the Canadian trying to follow the discussion about joint all domain command and control um, and how that's emerging in the United States. General, can you talk a little bit about how you would see that working um, between NORAD and NORTHCOM as well as uh, other US forces and allies and then uh, Canadians? And then particularly um, to go back to what you said earlier that if uh, it's not necessarily gonna be the case that the NORAD uh, remit expands beyond um, aerospace warning and response and maritime warning. How do you fit the other domains into a joint all domain command and control framework uh, with that one and a half domain perspective in mind? Now that's, that's actually, a, a, it's a tough question, uh, but I can tell you that first of all, everybody recognizes, Iris mentioned this to the services recognize it, other nations recognize it, uh, NATO is going through the same thing right now, recognizes that the threats that exist are going to be in all domains simultaneously. 
And the stovepiped approach we have right now, where we have a command and control system associated with a particular domain, and, and the humans are forced to look across each one of those domains to try to understand what is happening uh, in a global sense, it's just not an effective approach. It worked in the past, but now when you can be simultaneously struck in multiple domains, you have to have an all domain command and control system, uh, or to use the Canadian term, pan-domain command and control. So what's interesting about this is um, where you uh, sit is where you stand on this issue. So if you are at a service level, joint all domain command and control might be very specifically about getting your various pieces of equipment to talk to each other at a tactical level. And it might be focused on a sensor to shooter, uh, uh, terminal level defeat, kinetic defeat of, uh, of a particular threat. Uh, that's not where NORAD and NORTHCOM are focused right now. That's not where General Van Herc is focused. He is very much focused, to Iris's point, well left of launch, to be able to deter and deny well before an attack is even underway. And that requires you to have command and control and an understanding of the data at the strategic and operational level. You remember back at the beginning of this, I mentioned the fact that this is about decision superiority timely uh, decisions and options available to national leaders in order to de-escalate in crisis to deter and peacetime. That's, that's where he's focused. He's having dialogues with his CJOC counterparts and NATO counterparts and other US geographic combatant command counterparts, and they are all focused on that same area. So the NORAD emphasis right now is on being able to understand, again, the situation well left of launch, to be able to see the patterns in the data. And by the way, that data exists today. The patterns are in there, but the human analyst can't necessarily see them in a timely fashion and be able to understand what the patterns in the data mean. So our focus today is to being able to have a common understanding of the situation across all of the nations, all of the commands, and be able to, from that common understanding of the situation, be able to develop global responses or global uh, approaches to whatever crisis is occurring. That's the focus. Uh, and we're making great progress in that through a series of exercises that we're calling global integration dominance experiments, where we're actually pulling in feeds from NATO, from UCOM, from the Indo-Pacific, from north of the border and south of the US border to be able to start to work at that today. That's another example of the speed of relevance topic when you come down to the actual movement forward. Now, you, the next part of the question you asked is how does NORAD work on this when, it, when that concept, when NORAD's mission is aerospace warning, aerospace control, and maritime warning? Well, because uh, we have the benefit of working in a NORAD and NORTHCOM organization with a single commander, even though we have distinctly separate missions, that commander can drive the same movement on the NORTHCOM side so that integrated into that is the U.S. maritime homeland defense concerns and our STRATCOM concerns and our UCOM concerns or NATO for allies and partners bringing in their feeds as well. So that um, moves it from simply the NORAD mission set to the broader mission set at the operational and strategic levels. While we're developing that level, we're directly engaging with the services to make sure that, that because you ultimately have to pass decisions, instructions, and information down to the tactical level, we have to be, make sure that the service level efforts focused on the tactical level are integrated and connected to that operational and strategic level development that we're undertaking here at the headquarters. There's one other interesting component to this that I think gets dropped a lot. Iris mentioned it, but it, that is the communication part of it. So I've been very focused on the decision-making part. What I didn't talk about is the communication part. 
particularly in the high north, communication is a significant challenge for us. Very limited um, satcom capability, widely distributed terrestrial antennas that allow us to talk back and forth. And so we recognize the need to invest in better communication in the high north. And that's uh, to allow us to pull the data off of sensors up there, but also to communicate and relay instructions down to our forces that are field in the north. That's kind of our approach, taking it from the operational strategic level down to the tactical level. Lindsay, but as a last piece, just ask you to, to build off what the general just said. Uh, if you think beyond what the American system is calling uh, multi-domain or, or, um, operations, which uh, to test my knowledge here, that's, that's maritime, air, space, cyber, land, I can't remember, I'm forgetting one of them, but there's, there's, there's the core ones that are the yeah. traditional, <laughs> those, those traditional ones. Um, and then there's kind of the, all the other stuff, uh, to use a highly technical term, that's now associated as being involved potentially in great power competition. Um, hybrid, a whole bunch of different terminologies, hybrid, below threshold, gray zone, et cetera, um, economic influence, um, traditional uh, sort of statecraft, spycraft type of operations, misinformation, disinformation. How do you see beyond just the, the NORAD Northcom piece within the wider American defense landscape? How's that all, all the other messy stuff being viewed? Is it a defense problem that needs defense solutions or is that a, something that's gonna be a national security or intelligence problem to be um, dealt with to support defense? What's the linkage between defense and the wide, wider elements of the, the US um, security apparatus? It's a great question, and I'm not sure that we've sorted it out, at least to my satisfaction, but it's something that merits a lot of really important attention. As I mentioned initially, you know, when we think about existential threats to the homeland, there is uh, a real uh, in focus, at least on, on the domestic extremism question, and I think we all know that there, that is in part not entirely by any means, but in part a product of information operations and uh, efforts from our adversaries overseas, um, if not to create those problems, at least to um, exacerbate them. So uh, there are some real existential threats associated with that type of activity. Um, there is a real lack of inclination to call anything, uh, call any of that uh, any word that has the word conflict associated with it, because of course there's just a real potential to escalate very quickly once you start getting into that verbiage. Um, and Russia in particular just loves to call things provocations, right? That's their like favorite tagline. So, um, so there's no there's no need to uh, scratch the itch and make things worse necessarily um, right off the bat. But there is a need to address it. And um, when we think about those kinds of threats, the, the DOD solution in terms of information operations capabilities um, is nowhere near capable to address uh, something like that. When we think about the information operations capabilities that DOD has stood up, they exist uh, primarily in the reserves, although there is an active duty information operations component. Um, information operations, civil affairs, that kind of engagement capability um, has really still been seen as ancillary to sort of the, the main effort of the military. Um, that's probably appropriate, but when we think about the reality of what future conflict might look like, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of the ways that we've um, thought about standing up those capabilities. There's also uh, a question about who should be dealing with these matters, and especially if we want to keep things out of the conflict realm, um, a civilian agency capability that would be better at addressing some of these matters is something that we probably should consider, but that's sort of, um, that's a big question, right, to, to stand, what, what is the capability that we need as a country in order to address some of these issues that 
that are real. What, you know, what, what problems do social media present to us? What problems do, does the sort of world in which we're talking about things like alternative facts that are creating novel problems um, uh, in a free and democratic society that we are, that Canada is, that we want to encourage around the world? There are real dilemmas that cracking down on those kinds of capabilities um, and efforts against us present, right? Um, and so we need to be thoughtful about addressing them. I don't know that I have a satisfactory answer to your question, um, but those are sort of some of the thoughts that came to mind in terms of addressing it. And the other thing that occurs to me as we talk about these matters is just the importance of international law and the importance of the US in particular thinking seriously about what kinds of positions it wants to be taking with respect to international law. There's been a trend, you know, this is me putting my lawyer hat on, this is a little bit of a, a passion issue for me. Um, there's been a trend from the United States and the world in general to move away from uh, treaty law and binding agreements into the non-binding, squishy, norm-setting type of environment. What that means is that when people breach or countries or anyone breaches international law, there's no accountability mechanism and there's no real ability to respond. So, um, so it's something that as the Biden administration has articulated a commitment to uh, strengthening international institutions and a return to um, a bolstering of international law, uh, I've not quite yet seen a true commitment to this question of whether, whether we might actually seek some binding agreements the downside of those is that they're binding on the United States too, right? So then um, the United States has had some uh, anxiety about doing anything that might uh, constrain our own sovereign decision-making processes. So uh, I'll, I'll leave that there, but, um, but that's an, another issue that will come into play as we start thinking about some of these tactics that are clearly in violation of international law, but that we don't really have good tools to respond to quite yet. General Fessler and Iris at Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us today on Defense Deconstructed. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like our stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaiica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa. And thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed.